Welcome everyone to episode 107, Skin Regeneration. I'm Dr. Kiki here with Dr. Dalen James, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies. Thanks so much for tuning in. How are you doing over there, Dalen? All right. We uh, just had our first snow on the East Coast, which is nice because the city stopped smelling like garbage. But <laughs> you get that slushy, disgusting snow, which uh, you're always worried. I have a four-year-old, you know, who's constantly eating snow like off the ground. Don't eat it! So disturbing. <laughs> no. So I've got him in for like his HIV test a little bit early this year. And we're trying to nip it in the bud. <laughs> good one. Good plans. Good plans. Here in Portland, we are down in the low 30s. It's really cold, but it's clear. Absolutely no snow. I am waiting. I am ready. I want to take my son skiing. It's time. It's time. I'm done with all these inversions and these, I don't know, these weather patterns that we get the warm, dry air. You get the cold, wet air. You get the snow. I want the snow, Dalen. Give you the snow. Take the snow. Give me the snow. snow. (laughs) All right. Well, it's not snowing here. It's snowing over there. I don't know where you are, but it is now time for us to start this show. Make sure you check us out at stemcellpodcast.com. That's the place where you can go to subscribe to our newsletter and also find all of our past episodes and other great resources. And of course, follow us on social media. You can find us at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter, Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook, and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher so that you can get these new episodes automatically downloaded to your phone or mobile device. Okay, we have an amazing show today. We are going to discuss a really transformative paper that has received a lot of press reporting the replacement of the entire epidermis of a young boy with a very severe disease. It is a touching, heartwarming story, and I mean, this is really important science that will potentially affect many moving forward. And so we are so excited to have Dr. Michele De Luca on the show to talk about this exciting discovery. It's going to be an amazing, wonderful, awesome conversation. But before we get into the interview, let's round it up. You ready, Dalen? I'm almost ready, Kiki. But first, I have an important question for our listeners out there. Do you need more organoids in your lab? Hey, PIs, are you considering replacing your graduate students with some organoids? Might not be such a bad choice. Well, stem cell technologies and cell press have teamed up to deliver the growing organoids from stem cells wall chart authored by Hans Klevers and Toshiro Sato. This handy reference provides an overview on culturing epithelial organoids, especially appropriate to today's show. Michele DeLuca is going to talk about how he expanded sheets of epithelium, although on probably different methods. But, you know, if you get this reference chart, it's going to look great hanging on your lab wall. So request a copy at www.stemcell.com slash organoid dash wall chart. Again, that's stemcell.com slash organoid dash wall chart. All right, Kiki, let's round it up. Get on with it, girl. Let us round it up. Yes, I am ready. And you guys out there, you know what's really important in the United States right now? Being aware of what's going on in Congress because it is going to affect 
science moving forward. This new tax plan, which separate versions of the tax bill, the budget have been, this tax plan have been approved by the House of Representatives and the Senate separately, but now they need to put the versions together and create a bill that jives with both branches of Congress so that they can put it into law. So anyway, both versions have many provisions that directly affect higher education. And this includes directly science training. And a lot of this emerged from a fairly closed-door process with little to no, no discussion of their policy objectives. So there's one provision to make tuition waivers, which are often provided by institutions to graduate students, taxable. And this has received a lot of discussion outside of Congress. Uh, These waivers at some institutions can amount to tens of thousands of dollars. And this provision could dramatically increase the tax liability of graduate students who usually don't get a lot of money from their modest stipends that really only cover the cost of living during their graduate training. So if it gets enacted and passed within the new bill, this provision could limit the ability of graduate students to complete their training programs and would particularly affect those students without other means to help support their studies. It's really not clear why they want to do this because the policy would disproportionately affect students without additional resources to support their educations and would likely decrease economic viability and competitiveness and talent would be lost from the science, technology, engineering, and mathematics enterprise. I mean, really, it would make graduate education something that's only available to the elite. And if we don't want that to happen, we should talk to our members of Congress to see that they vote against this provision. The House bill also repeals the deduction for student loan interest, and that further exacerbates the effect. I don't understand. I I honestly, it's like, yeah, you get this deduction for this student loan interest, you know, and never mind. Nope. So dumb. Nothing for you. (laughs) This is so obviously dumb. I don't think anyone's even debating it. They they don't even have a fight for it. I want someone to stand up and say, this is why we're doing it and have any reason. I would listen to anything at this point, but it's just so dumb. They're going to get rid of it. I, I Mark my words. I say it. Sometimes it happens. And they're like, but we need to have, bring in more tax money for the government to pay for our deficit, which they're making bigger by cutting the taxes on the corporations and the high-earning exactly. people of We that. need to wring the money out of our <laughs> young students who are educating and you know, yeah. trying to inform the next era of innovation so that somebody who's already rich can get, get another bottle of dump. No, thanks. Yeah, and in the process, hamstring our technological progress. Yeah. I mean... So dumb. So dumb. Ah! So people, we need, to, we need to speak up about this. We do need to speak up about it. Another thing that is really important in the United States is the opioid epidemic. There are new opioid prescription guidelines at a University of Michigan hospital about which a team reported online December 6th in JAMA surgery. So they looked at uh, how things changed five months after the implementation of these new guidelines. I mean, hospitals really might be one of the front lines to halt the misuse of opioids, according to this study. They found around 50% of people who misuse opioids get the drugs from a friend or a relative for free, 
22% get them from a doctor. And Michael Engelsby, a surgeon at the University of Michigan, says that part of doing a better job of managing patients' pain, quote, will be preventing chronic opioid use after surgical care and making sure fewer pills get into the community. He and his colleagues looked at 170 people who had a minimally invasive surgery to remove their gallbladders between 2015 to 2016 at the University of Michigan. All of them had received a prescription for opioids. 100 of those patients completed a survey detailing how much of the prescription they took, whether they also used a common painkiller such as ibuprofen or acetaminophen, and how they rated their pain a week after surgery. The typical prescription was about 40 to 60 tablets containing 5 milligrams of hydrocodone. Seven patients requested a prescription refill. The 100 patients who completed the survey really didn't use very much of their prescriptions, usually only somewhere around 1 to 12 pills. And their average pain score was on a scale of 0 to 10 was 5. So it wasn't totally unmanageable. So based on this information, guidelines for opioid prescriptions following the same type of surgery were implemented at the hospital in November of 2016. The researchers recommended prescriptions instead of 40 to 60 tablets of only 15 opioid pills, plus the use of common painkillers. After the guidelines went into effect, 200 patients had the gallbladder surgery, five patients asked for an opioid prescription refill, 86 patients filled out the survey again, and they reported that they used even less of their prescriptions, between zero and nine pills, than the original group. And so these patients also reported about the same pain score as the original group. And so the study demonstrates a relatively simple intervention at the institutional level with promising results. Patients receive opioid prescriptions within a healthcare system, so it makes sense to focus on getting our systems to work better in reducing the unnecessary supply of opioids after surgery. Yeah, for sure. I, I'm such a cynic. I just assume that they're overprescribing the amount. I'm sure if you ask somebody, like, how many days do you think you're going to need painkillers best in your pain, they'd say something minimal, and somehow the big pharma has convinced all these doctors that everybody needs 10 to 14 days worth of opioids to relieve pain after minor surgery. So fight back against pharma. I'm glad to see someone's doing it. They'll make less money. I think also part, it is pharma, but it is also the way that care works in hospitals in that it became a standard to make sure that people didn't have pain and to treat mm. pain and as opposed to being okay with a little bit of pain. Managing the pain. Managing right. the pain, yeah. Like a recent study also said that some people have very similar results just taking a combination of acetaminophen and ibuprofen. So taking those in combo actually can replace the opioid use. They work well. I had a couple surgeries on my shoulder. I know it's not the same thing, and everybody experiences pain differently, but the opioids they gave me made me feel so much worse because I was yeah. so nauseous that I just took Tylenol, and I was much happier. I hate to say this, but the first time, they only started working when they started getting me high, when I was no longer getting sick. Uh, and then I was getting high instead. And then I wanted a refill. So I mean, You're I'm like, I'm you. getting high. Of course I want more. Exactly. <laughs> they, they only work when, they, when they're working in a bad way. Oh, that's not, yeah, not good. Yeah. Just say no. New guidelines, they look like they're promising. Hospitals can be a part of it. And maybe we don't really need to use them all the time. 
Okay, this is cool, cool, cool news out of the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Researchers from the University of Cambridge and Nanyang Technological University in Singapore looked at babies and how their brains work and how they connect with adults. So they put 17 eight-month-old babies, they put EEG caps on them, which EEG caps are used to record collective behavior of nerve cells across the brain. And the infants then watched a video in which an experimenter, also outfitted in an EEG cap, sang them a nursery rhyme while looking either straight ahead at the baby, at the baby but with her head turned at a 20-degree angle, or looking away from the baby with her head turned at a 20-degree angle. What they showed is that when the researcher looked at the baby, either facing the baby or with her head turned at that 20-degree angle, the baby's brains responded, showing activity patterns that started to resemble the activity patterns of the researcher's brains. And so then they did a real-life experiment where it wasn't a video, but the same researcher from the video sat near 19 different babies. They all wore their EEG caps for recording brain activity. And they found that real-life eye contact prompted a synchronization in brain patterns similar to what they'd seen in that video experiment. So when eyes connected between baby and researcher, brain activity fell into sync. And when the eyes wandered, brain activity didn't match as closely. So the question now, it's like, how do they get in sync? The baby and adult's brain activity appeared to do so by somehow meeting in the middle. When the gazes were shared, the baby's brain waves became more like the researchers and the researchers became more like the babies. And so the finding is giving new insight into the infant's amazing abilities to connect to and tune in with their adult caregivers. It's also interesting because there have been previous studies showing that eye contact between adults leads to this similar brain activity synchronization. There is a synchronization of pupil dilation when people share eye contact, and there is a synchronization of blinking patterns when people share eye contact, and that also leads to actual brain waves syncing up. And whether this is because one person is talking and the other person is listening and those signals happen in a particular pattern and rhythm, that's one aspect of it. But to see that this also happens in the baby's brain, this is probably something that's very important to development and the social aspects of development and cognition. In the future, this could be really helpful also because when high school students have brain waves that are in sync, kids report actually being more engaged in the classroom. So the synchronization could actually lead to better communication and learning in different environments. Pretty cool stuff. I think a, a bunch of teenagers are going to be weirded out when the teacher, like, gives them the eye contact, <laughs> the sustained eye contact. I'm <laughs> looking at you. <laughs> I believe in you, Travis. I believe in you. And, no. All right, teacher dude. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, I've had those moments where I was connecting, you know, with my infant sons. And mm-hmm. right after that, immediately after, every time they pooped. So I, I thought that I had a, like a little mental connection with them. It was only surrounding poop. 
<laughs> Good job, Dad. That's what I got to for. Hoop spotter. There you go. My final story is, oh, great. I love it about SARS. No, it's back. I love SARS. I missed yeah. it. So there's a new study uh, reported in PLOS Pathogens. Viruses in bats may have mixed and matched genes to create the virus that gave rise to SARS in 2003. And it could happen again. Fingers crossed. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah. Anyway, the research reports that all of the ingredients needed to create a new SARS virus are found among viruses that currently infect horseshoe bats. The viruses are, quote, poised to cause future outbreaks. So SARS is a disease called severe acute respiratory syndrome caused by a type of coronavirus. The first human case was recorded in 2002 in Guangdong province in southern China, and then there was a global epidemic that sickened more than 8,000 people, killing 774 back in 2003. During that outbreak, one problem was that masked palm civets that were sold in live animal markets were able to pass the virus to people. And at first it wasn't clear whether the civets were the initial source of the virus or if they caught it from another animal. But since then, we've found a whole bunch of evidence that's been implicating species of horseshoe bats as the source. Until now, though, coronaviruses isolated from bats were genetically distinct from the one that caused the outbreak. And that suggested that bat strains weren't the ancestor of SARS. But five years of surveying bats in a cave, the researchers from the Wuhan Institute of Virology, Chinese Academy of Sciences, who published this study along with other virologists. They've discovered 11 new strains of SARS-related viruses in horseshoe bats. And within those strains, they found all of the genes that could combine to make a SARS coronavirus similar to the epidemic strain. And these new strains are more similar to the human version of SARS than were previously identified in the bat viruses. The team found that several of the strains could already grow in human cells. And that indicates that there's a huge chance that the viruses that exist in these bats could jump to people. But whether or not they will, we don't really know. And so now the researchers are trying to figure out how to head that off. You know, we can't just get rid of the bats because bats are ecologically important, but they are a reservoir because these viruses don't make the bats sick. And so they carry it and can pass it along pretty easily if they come in contact. Yikes, SARS. You know what we should do is get rid of all those masked palm civets because <laughs> they are so obscure and esoteric that I don't think they have much value. Yeah, it's these uh, these wild animal markets in Southeast Asia that are real issue because a lot of individuals are going out into the forests and trapping animals that potentially come into contact with bat guano or with, you know, whatever the path of transmission happens to be. Or maybe even the individuals have trapped bats and in their holding and carrying these animals to the market, all the animals come into contact, and maybe that's how the virus gets passed along from animal to animal. But these markets are really turning into a place where these diseases seem to emerge, and that's something that needs to be looked at as well. But anyway, that's all I got. It's for now. Yay! Yay. I, you know, leaving us on a positive viral note. 
Well, at least it's not back. I'd rather hear about it. it could come back than it's back and millions are dying. So nope. I'm going to look at the silver lining there. We're going to anticipate this time and, you know, nip it in the bud. Good. No SARS. Tell me about stem cells. I'll tell you, there's a lot of things about stem cells that people know. You know, the idea of this regenerative medicine, stem cells are synonymous. But when you break it down, what stem cells are on the tissue-specific level is that they're a unit of repopulation, right? They restore the tissues that die or, you know, just move on or perform their function and then go away by renewing them. But they also have this kind of asymmetric process where they self-renew and then they give off one differentiating cell. And there's a lot of attention being paid to this process because if you can affect this balance of self-renewal versus you know, lineage-specific differentiation, you can control the ability of a tissue to repopulate and to restore dead or dying derivatives. And this is especially important in age because that's what's pretty much happening, right? We're depleting our stem cell populations and you know, running out of gas, so to speak, on a tissue level, and not able to restore the lost and damaged tissue. But, you know, we may be coming to an end of the age of aging. That was a terrible thing to say, but it's true. <laughs> There's research now examining the relationship of stem cells and TOR, okay? This is published in Cell Stem Cell recently. It was, came out of two specific institutes, the Buck Institute for Research on Aging in California, and also... Stanford University. So Samantha Haler, a PhD, led the work. It was from the Buck Institute, and they were focused on these tissue-specific stem cells in fruit flies, in the intestines of fruit flies. Also, she looked in the trachea of mice, and this is, you know, moving across systems to show that these are stem cells that have similar dynamic processes, but they share this fundamental relationship um, that, you know, revolves around TOR. And uh, at Stanford, meanwhile, researchers were working on mouse muscles. Uh, this work was led by Heinrich Jasper. And the goal there was trying to understand how you could affect mTOR signaling, in the case at Stanford, using rapamycin. Okay? This is a drug that's typically used to prevent rejection of kidneys, but it's also known to be a TOR inhibitor. And in this study, they showed that adding TOR, this TOR inhibitor, rapamycin, to the cultures of these cells, you were able to successfully maintain and restore stem cells regardless of the age of the mouse. So this wasn't just in vitro, but also in these mice, you were able to, in old mice, a mouse that's 15 months old, which in related to human years, that's like 50 years old, you're able to maintain and restore these stem cell populations. Again, even when you start the treatment in an old mouse. So as uh, Heinrich Jasper notes, the current work is unable to confirm how exactly these cells are restored. There's a, a lot of different mechanisms. For example, it could be just increased activity of the cells. They're making more self-renewing, also making more derivatives. It could be that they're shifting the balance from a kind of balanced asymmetric self-renewal to a symmetric, just repopulating, making two stem cells, or it could be unknown mechanisms. And you know, these are forthcoming studies, presumably, going forward that they're going to look to understand the mechanism. But some major questions surrounding the study is, are there chronic increases in TOR signaling 
that happen that deplete stem cell population in aging individuals? Is it just steady state TOR ultimately depletes the stem cell pool? A lot of questions can come out of this, but fundamentally, I think it reinforces this approach of using rapamycin and mTOR inhibitors as a means of mitigating the uh, loss of these tissue-specific stem cell populations and aging better, aging more healthfully, which I think, you know, what we all want is not just a long life, but a long life that's vigorous and healthy. <laughs> yeah, get to work, Buck Institute. I want you to yeah. fix this problem called aging before I get much ageder. <laughs> Well, you've got a long I'm way over to go, it. You've got plenty of years, and you're aging well as it is, so don't complain. Next story, you know, there's aging, uh, which is inevitable, but then there's unfortunate diseases. In particular, there's type 1 diabetes. There's about 30 million Americans have a form of diabetes, and this is the condition of the body where you can't really correct your blood sugar levels via insulin. But there's, of those 30 million, there's roughly 1.25 million, one and a quarter million people living with type 1 diabetes. Okay, This is a condition that's autoimmune mediated. The body mistakenly kills the beta cells found in the pancreas that are supposed to make insulin. And therefore, these patients, unfortunately, don't have a ready source of regulating their blood sugar. So there's a startup that wants to change the way we treat type 1 diabetes, and they just raised $114 million. Sema Therapeutics started in 2014. It's researching ways to use stem cells that act like these beta cells to treat and effectively cure type 1 diabetes. This latest funding round was co-led by Eight Roads Ventures, Cowan Healthcare Investments, Existing investors are MPM Capital, F-Prime Capital Partners, Arch Venture Partners, Novartis, Medtronic, JDRF. Everybody is throwing money at this technology because it probably has a good chance. This $114 million latest raise is combined with $49 million the company raised previously. Brings the total budget to $163 million. And the plan, SEMA's plan, is to use this funding to get this treatment, which has been tested in animals, into human trials. Okay, so what's the treatment? Let's just talk about existing treatments. There's cadaveric transplant. You can take beta islets from a cadaver, which is faced with just the idea of immune rejection, also kind of creepy in a zombie-like way. There's the ES-derived approach, okay, where you're just creating new beta islets from embryonic stem cells, but that's faced with many obstacles, although we're going to come back to in a second. There's a more device driven approach where you can even have a, a self-contained device that both senses the blood sugar and then pumps out insulin, kind of artificial pancreas. But Sama wants to go with this ES-derived approach, right? And the problem with the ES-derived approach is twofold. One, you're making ES-derived cells, which is, is faced with the whole myriad immune rejection type issues. But also there's the basic idea that in type 1 diabetes in particular, you're not necessarily addressing the etiology of the disease. If you put in more beta islets, in other words, how do you know that the autoimmune attack isn't just going to wipe those out? And that's actually what happens in many of these cases. So in order to protect these ES-derived cells, the therapy developed by SEMA, and I should mention this is therapy based on the work of Doug Mountain at the Harvard Stem Cell Institute, who's one of the godfathers of uh, this whole idea of making pancreatic beta islets out of ES cells. And he has a really nice story. I mean, it's a tragic story that he 
directed into tremendous productivity. Both of his kids are affected by type 1 diabetes, so that's really driven his interest in the research. And the company, Sema, is named after his kids, Sam and Emma. And now with this $163 million, I don't think they're going to have to really pay back their college loans. So this is a good turn of events for them, but this is how it works. What they're doing is essentially taking these embryonic stem cell-derived beta cells, and they're encapsulating them in this device that's about the size of a Band-Aid that then is inserted subcutaneously. Thereby, those cells that are sitting in there are protected from the immune attack, but they can also respond to blood sugar levels and then secrete insulin, which then can you know, go across this device and enter circulation. So it's essentially this insulated device that is responsive to the biology of the system and the signals within the system while also protecting the therapeutic from the immune effect of the patient. It's a therapy that's been developed by not a lot, but at least one other company, and it's a very competitive field. And I think now the question is whether, in fact, this device will be insulated from all immune effects, namely a kind of fibrotic innate immunity, which has been shown to attack some of these membranes that were developed to protect against immune attack. But we'll see. They got the money now to test it, Kiki. And we're going to see how that works out very shortly, it seems. That is exciting. That's it. That's what she has to say. It's yeah. exciting. Well, It I'm is. Excited. I want to see it work. Yes. I mean. Yeah, we'll have to see. So many teams working on this for so long. And let's, yes, human trials. Let's make it work. Yes. I want to see it. The medical it. need is great. People are getting diabetes all over the place. And these kids, though, they were born with it. So, I mean, let's get them first. Save yeah. the kids. I mean, yeah, even beyond, you know, there's the type 2 diabetes that, that develops. But when you're born with it, the type 1. And seriously, both of his kids have type 1 diabetes. Uh, diabetes. Yeah, no. Man. Uh, he tells his story. The genetic lottery. That sucks. Well, he's a smart dude. You know what? He won some and he lost some. But he's turning the loss into a win. So good for Dougie M. Yep. And his kids. They're all going to be healthy and live long lives. Just like the rest of us, if Shinya Yamanaka has his wish. Although this is a bit weird. So he's asking Fujifilm to keep licensing fees low. All right? Get your mind around that. Shinya Yamanaka, Nobel laureate. He discovered IPSLs. He's asking, nay, begging Fujifilm Holdings to keep fees in check for using patented technology related to induced pluripotent stem cells. So let's just talk about this. Japanese government is investing a ton of money, about a billion American over a decade, into research on iPS cells, these are the reprogrammed cells. And they have the government backing. And the, the Center for iPS Cell Research and Application, or CIRA, of which Shinya Yamanaka is the director, is building a stock of these cells that businesses and other bodies can use to create cells for medical transplants. Not freely used, but used with relatively few restrictions. And to facilitate this, the licensing company, Coyote University, where CIRA is, they manage basic patents on iPS cell technology with a royalty rate of just 1.5%, which is relatively low. And this low rate is aimed at promoting the technology's use. Our Fujifilm, which has a subsidiary called Cellular Dynamics International in the U.S., they patented iPS cell production technology that's critical to modifying cells for transplantation. And although Fujifilm has not disclosed its licensing fees, you know, and said they have, quote, no intention of impeding research, it's also said in past interviews that, quote, should businesses seek to commercialize iPS cell operations, there would naturally 
be patent negotiations, just as in drug manufacturing. Meanwhile, Shin Yamanaka is saying, quote, stockpiling IPSLs is a public service project. Prices ought not to be raised. So this is, you know, an old story. And I think it's natural for the company to try and capitalize on its investment. But Shin is in the right place on this. You know, we got to develop the technologies. And if we water down all these efforts with all these licensing fees it's in development, I don't think anything's going to ever get off the ground. So a plea for Shinya, give him a break. He's doing good for mankind. This is that tug of war constantly between the scientific endeavor and the business world, right? And when business gets involved and there's money on the line, how far does it go? How far should it be allowed to go? And yeah, stockpiling IPS cells, that should be a public service project. There should be a library that researchers can pull from to be able to do their various research projects, to be able to, I need these cells. I need to try and modify these cells. How can I do that? Where can I get these? And research is expensive enough. Having cells available at reasonable prices is good. But then there's the, you know, this technology for modifying these cells for transplanting. And if it becomes a treatment-based thing, then you're getting into very similar to pharmaceutical type stuff. Yeah, so I see both sides, but ah, yeah. Listen, in my view, make it easy. And when the money starts pouring in, go get your money. But <laughs> right now we're at development stages, okay? So I think Fujifilm's gonna come around on this. It's in their interest to facilitate the research so they can get to a project. I don't see them yeah. making any products at Fujifilm, all right? Where are they making over there anymore? Anyone take pictures? <laughs> but maybe, maybe you know, this is good. Maybe Shinya is, is stepping in with this request at the right time before it becomes an issue. Start the conversation before it's too late. Also setting a precedent. I think there's a lot of, you know, companies that have skin in the game. I think this will be a really important precedent to set. So yeah. hoping that works out. And now for the final story, which, you know, I'm going to try and breeze through because we're going to get the real detail with our guest, Michele. Uh, but just, you know, to set it up, this is a really amazing study. We're so excited to have the senior author in this paper to discuss it in depth. So a couple weeks ago now, doctors used the stem cell treatment on a seven-year-old boy, a son who was suffering from epidermolysis bullosa. Okay, this is a condition that causes the skin to blister and rip off very easily. It's a result of a genetic mutation in genes that encode for the proteins that function to anchor the outermost layer of the skin, epidermis, to the other layers of the skin. And epidermolysis bullosa, EB, is usually lethal, and the only form of treatment is really, really expensive, with costs for bandages that reach almost $100,000 every year. Mm. To quote... Dr. Jacob Tolar, quote, they're like walking burn victims. This is Dr. Jacob Tolar is a pediatric bone marrow transplant physician at the University of Minnesota Masonic Children's Hospital, who's also developing cell uh, therapies in parallel to Michele DeLuca for uh, therapies for EB. The boy in question, a son, he'd lost nearly all his skin and contracted a lot of infections. The situation became so bad that he was in a septic state, life-threatening at the time of treatment. It was so hard to cure this kid. I mean, the idea that this kid was going to have a chance, it was very remote. But they were able to do it. The treatment involved inserting a, a gene, you know, the defective gene that's lost. It's a monogenetic, monogenic disease to retrovirally introduce a gene into a biopsy from the patient to expand the stem progenitor cells from that biopsy 
and then to seed those onto a matrix in vitro and then to apply them to the wound sites of these patients. And using a patch of the boy's skin from an unblistered area as a source, they were able to regenerate up to a square meter, I think, of this kid's skin. A huge percentage of his skin was replaced. 80%. 80%. 80% of this boy's body was covered in new skin in a month after one month. He stopped developing blisters. And although the procedure wasn't really applicable to the mucosa, the, the inner epidermal linings like in the esophagus and trachea inside the mouth, for this boy, luckily, he didn't really have a problem with EB. It wasn't manifesting in his mucosa. So for this kid, seven-year-old, Syrian refugee, about to die, looks like a total cure. We're going to talk about this in more detail with Dr. Michele DeLuca right about now after a few messages from Kiki. <laughs> yeah, if you haven't seen images of this Hassan's body. I mean, the, the poor child, the images are, are heartbreaking. And it's, I cannot wait to have this interview and this chance to talk with Dr. DeLuca because this is one of those just the stories that this is why people do science. This is why people get into medicine. This is it. So I'm really looking forward to that. All right, then. Our friends at Stem Cell Technologies would like to introduce their one-stop resource for researchers who are using or looking to use organoids in their experiments. Stem Cell's Organoid Information Hub provides scientists with instructional videos, educational webinars, expert interviews, technical tips, and curated publications to help researchers set up and optimize organoids as a research model in their labs Learn about organoid culture from the experts at Stem Cell. Visit www.stemcell.com slash discover hyphen organoids. That's stemcell.com slash discover hyphen organoids. All right. The Stem Cell Podcast and Stem Cell Technologies are very pleased to welcome our guest today, Dr. Michele De Luca. Professor DeLuca has been involved in epithelial stem cell biology aimed at clinical application in regenerative medicine for over 20 years. Beside his work on the use of human epidermal stem cell cultures in life-saving treatment of massive full-thickness burns and in repigmentation of stable vitiligo and piebaldism, he established human limbal stem cell culture aimed at corneal regeneration in patients with severe limbal stem cell deficiency. He's also studying molecular mechanisms regulating self-renewal proliferative potential, and clonal evolution of epithelial stem cells, and is here to discuss his work and latest groundbreaking paper published in Nature. Welcome to the show, Dr. DeLuca. Hi. Hi to everybody. It's wonderful to get you on the show here. Congratulations on that your latest work that's been published. But before we dive into that specific study, can you just start by expanding a little bit on your work and what you focus on? The uh, work that has been published for the gene therapy has been originated by many, many years of work that actually started in the U.S. By the time I was in Harvard Medical School in the laboratory of Professor Howard Green, it was about 30 years ago. That was the time where, for the first time, human epidermal keratinocytes were grown. And uh, it was marvelous to see at those times, to see a piece of tissue coming out from a culture dish. Then, as you mentioned before, we developed our own activities in Italy after 
I was back to Italy in the late 80s, so beginning of the 90s. And then when we started treating birds. And that was a very big experience we accumulated in the knowledge of the epidermis themselves, but also in the way of getting those cells into the clinics. And this part of the work in the birds was instrumental, was very important in order to get then the gene therapy done. Meanwhile, as you mentioned, we developed, especially Graziella Pellegrini, that we've been working together since many years, she developed in the lab this corneal culture and corneal transplantation that, uh, again, was giving us a lot of insights into the epithelial stem cell biology and the clinical application, because we were facing problems that were not we were not facing with the skin. And that for us was a big experience again. After all this, that we got involved in the, the genetic modification of the epidermal stem cells that was leading to the gene therapy of epidermalized bullosa and the paper you were referring to. Dr. Luca, I think, you know, maybe a lot of people don't appreciate about this because you know, at the bottom line is you saved the kid's life. And that's what really, I think, probably is the most important endpoint that you can have in, in science and medicine. But I guess what maybe people don't appreciate is that this is, as you just said, the consolidation of gene therapy and regenerative medicine. You're combining these two fields that are really at the leading edge of medical therapy now, but in one shot, you've combined them both to affect this life-saving therapy. Would you mind elaborating a little bit on what the problem is with this particular patient and how you were able to affect a, a solution to that problem? The first issue you are raising is actually very important. You know, this is a time where there is a lot of hope in uh, regenerative medicine, stem cell and regenerative medicine. There's also a lot of hypes. And uh, what I can tell, what I learned actually from uh, all these years is that what you do need is a lot of basic science to start with. And you have to really understand the biology of the system you are working with. And this is only after this that, if you wish, if you want, you can translate this into the clinical setting. Now, usually when you do things like cell and gene therapy, this is actually, you're right, I mean, it's, a, it's a combined cell and gene therapy because you have to combine the stem cell biology, the cell culture, the cell therapy with the genetic modification. We started actually with the phase one, phase two clinical trial to bring into the clinics this gene therapy in a small area on a few patients. And this is the way you're supposed to go, you know, to, progressive phase one, phase two clinical trial. What happened with this kid, with Azan, was a sort of revolution of our life, you know, because what we got was a kid that has lost his skin. So the severity of the disease was so big, so high, that instead of having so-called normal blistering in the skin, he has lost his skin. And again, what I learned from our green was coming back into my mind. Because at that time, it was exactly how Howard was starting with the birds. He was studying the basic science of the cells. Then he got two kids with 95% full thickness birth. And he was sort of ethical and moral to try to save those kids. Exactly what happened to us. We were putting everything together. The 30 years of what we have learned in the epidemic of cell biology, all the experience we have gained with the full thickness birth, and the initial phase one clinical trial that was, were telling us that those genetically modified epithelial cells could indeed work. And together with this marvelous, marvelous group of surgeons and pediatricians in Bokum, 
we decided to try to save the life of this kid. And it did work. So I have to, take, to say that it was one of the biggest emotional aid in my life. Can you talk a little bit about the specific disease and genetically how it presents, the pathology, and what the usual prognosis is, and then how the gene modification aspect worked? Well, you know, epithelialysis bullosa is a complex disease. Is monogenic, so is a genetic monogenic disease affecting not only the skin but all the internal epithelia, like the oral mucosa, the eye, the upper eyeways, the intestine, the esophagus, and is due to mutations in genes that keep the epithelium attached to the underlying stroma. In the case of the skin, to the underlying dermis, and because of the modification of the alteration of this gene, you have the epidermis detaching, basically, from the body, from the dermis, spontaneously or upon minimal trauma. So this kid, they make blistering all the time, and the disease can be devastating. There are many forms of the disease, and many genes are involved, you know, not only the junction that we have treated, but also other genes are involved. And there are different levels of severity of the disease, but what we call the severe generalized form of ED both junctional and dystrophic, are really devastating disease for these kids. Not only the quality of life is miserable, but also the life expectancy is very short because the vast majority of them, they develop aggressive squamous cell carcinoma. In the case of Bazan, there was also a quite peculiar human story because, you know, this was a kid living in Syria. He was escaping from the war, so the family was moving from Syria to Germany. But... Can you imagine a severe generalized EB kid moving from Syria to Germany? They get in a new country. He was not able, family was not able to immediately get into the health system in Germany. So as a consequence of all this, the kids was deteriorating because all the super infection he has in his body with the staph aureus, with Pseudomonas aeruginosa, was causing disappearance, this detachment, full detachment of the epidermis. So, he was in critical condition in the hospital, was weighing 17 kilograms, and it was one of the most devastating, the most severe form of EB I've seen. Yeah, I mean, we think of our skin as most people take it for granted. Maybe you cut it occasionally, but in the case of this child, I mean, his skin is no longer a barrier or was no longer a barrier to the bacterial infection. That's the point. You see, I give you an example of the full thickness burn. In the full thickness burn, you destroy the skin entirely. Epidermis, dermis, and fat. And then when these patients, they get healed, they have a lot of scars. But they can survive because you can recreate the epidermis. So you cannot live without the epidermis just because of that. Just because of the barrier you get with the external world. And this was missing in the skin. And you were mentioning about the wounds, okay, that you regularly have. This is the... <laughs> Situations where you appreciate and you understand the stem cells that are in the skin, in the epidermis, they are so great that can keep regenerating, keep healing this epidermis all lifelong. And in fact, the main challenge of this treatment, of this therapy we have done in Azan, was to control, to maintain the population of the stem cells that were in the dish, to preserve them, not to lose them, not to have the clonal conversion that will lead to the loss of those stem cells. So, and to make enough skin from the small biopsy 
without the full control of the biology of the system in order to make piece of epidermis that we are reproducing the normal situation with the right proportion of stem, progenitors, and other cells that will give rise to a full functional epidermis. You kind of mentioned there that the, one of the major risk factors for these kids is squamous cell carcinoma. And you're talking about the basis of the disease, like structurally, is the anchorage of the upper layer to the lower layer, is that? That the layers, and so is the stem cell population is intact. Is that what's going on? That the stem cells are constantly trying to replace that outer layer that's being lost, and that's how you can oftentimes get this kind of proliferative transformation to cancer cells? Is that the why these well, kids are at risk? So it doesn't come because of the stem cells, because, you know, there are skin cancer like cancer in any other tissues or epithelial tissues. The importance of the stem cell is exactly what you said, that we renew basically our epidemics quite often. We don't realize this, but we basically renew even monthly. So we lose a lot of squames during, our, during the day, and these are replaced by a population of progenitors, proliferating progenitors, that are derived from this amount of stem cells that are in the basal layer of mm. the epidermis. They're also in the bulge of the air follicle, but those they tend to make the air follicle. Usually in the interfollicular epidermis, we have this population of stem cells that are responsible for this continuous renewal. This is the mechanism by which we heal our wounds daily, and obviously, in patients with epidermolysis bullosa where they get constant and continuous healing, at a certain point, you might even have exhaustion of those stem cells. And actually, mm -hmm. there are situations where, especially in the severe for people that get to the 30s or the 40s, they don't die early, they have lesions that cannot even heal anymore just mm -hmm. because of the exhaustion of this mechanism. Now, this plus other things that are related to the uh, alteration in the addition properties. It might be some cause that will lead at a certain point to the development of the skin cancer. And so the disease is not because of the stem cells. It's I see, I see. of the disease that the cancer can. One obvious question, I mean, seems like a good question to me. Maybe the answer is what's obvious, and I'm just not getting it. When you have a, a treatment that is successful on such a scale, and, you know, replacing that, the percentage was overwhelming, percentage of this boy's skin, what's the barrier to applying this in all these other kind of skin graft type contexts? There's a lot of need for that type of approach. Can we just get a biopsy from any normal patient and regrow skin for treatment of burns, for example? Or is there some fundamental limitation to that? No, absolutely. You know, this is actually, as I said at the beginning of the interview, the experience we have accumulated in treating hundreds of patients with full thickness burns was extremely important for us to grow the entire epidermis of this boy. As a matter of fact, and I have been sort of honest with you in this, it was a lot of impression around the world on the fact that we were able to grow the entire epidermis on the boy. But it was not strange to us because we have been treating also all those patients with the full thickness burn, and instead of making a square meter of skin, as we did in Azam, it happened to us that we made in the past even up to two square meters. It's not a limitation of 
the technology is a limitation basically of the surgery. You cannot change the skin in one shot because the surgery, it is somehow too aggressive. And the important thing is to keep, as I said, I will never be tired to repeat this. The important thing is to keep that population of stem cells in the appropriate environment in order to have a functional culture of the epidermis to be transplanted. The fact that you can grow those cells in large quantities is because of the beauty of that specific stem cell. And it is obvious, if you think about it, the skin is the external part of our body. And we have like approximately two square meters of epidermis in our body. And we got constant injuries. Sometimes we have a small cut. Sometimes we lost, we lose a lot of epidermis because of a, an accident, for instance, right? So the system is made in such a way that the epidermis is full of those stem cells that are important both in the maintenance of the epidermis, but they get to get activated and multiply and grow in high quantities the moment they have to make big wounds. So what the cells are doing the job, not us, what we are doing is just to respect those stem cells to keep them happy and to ask them to do what they like to do. It seems easy, but it's not easy. But conceptually, it's very simple. You know the biology of the stem cells, you know how to grow them, you know how to preserve their properties. And at that point, it doesn't really matter whether it is a piece of skin like this or the entire body. It's just a matter of scaling. But if the basic principles are there and you know the biology of the system, then you can do it. Once you've replaced the skin and done the, the transplant, does the body and the skin then know to turn off this regenerative capacity? Once it's on the body, does it stop proliferating and growing in such a way? Or is there a risk of cancer to people who have had these skin transplants of either small or large quantities? No, because the system is sort of self-regulating. The moment we have the engraftment of the body in the, on the body and we have the epidermis regenerated, then it gets to the normal function. As a matter of fact, to my knowledge, although thousands of people have been treated in full thickness burn around the world, ourselves, we have done a few hundreds, but also other people, other than group, have used epidermal culture for full thickness burn. To my knowledge, not a single case of cancer development has been reported. And then for the child himself, Hassan, is now that you've done the gene modification that treated the epidermolysis bullosa, is that fixed? Is he not going to suffer from that anymore? Or is because it's affected, you affected that gene change at the level of the stem cells? What is the prognosis for him moving forward? Let me be very clear on this. We did not cure the disease at all. And the epidermolysis bullosa is still there. And in these patients, what we have done is to cure the epidermis, not even all the epidermis, 80% of the epidermis, okay? But we couldn't take care of the internal lesion. In the specific case of Azan, his mucosa is different mucosa. They are not very much involved. So he doesn't have real problems in, in uh, eating, in drinking. So the internal mucosa are fine. So the quality of his life is really basically normal now. But what we did was to cure the skin, just the skin. Your question is important. 
how long this effect is going to last. Obviously, only the time will tell us this. But there is a number of observations that makes me say that most likely is going to be forever. First of all, we have patients with the birds that have now 30 years follow-up. And we also have treated kids. And those kids, they grow up. And the epidermis is still there, it's still functional. The first patient we have done in the gene therapy with genetically modified cells, we treated only the legs. But now the follow-up in these patients, the first patients we have done, is 12 years. In 12 years, the skin is absolutely stable. It did not develop a single blister. By all means, we look at the skin of Azan. It looks to us normal, functional, robust. It doesn't blister. It doesn't need ointment. It doesn't itch. And it keeps renewing the skin every month. So since we know, because of the particular labeling, is the, other, the second part of the work, it deals with the stem cell biology. So because this uh, clonal tracing we made by genetically modified cells, it told us that the stem cells were there and were genetically modified and were sustaining the epidermis. I do expect that this transgenic skin in Azan will last for a very long time, if not forever. I mean, I believe it. Let's say, though, if you were worried or you had a condition where there was a risk of reversion or something, is there a way that you can generate the skin and then store it to keep so you could have a kind of personalized off-the-shelf product for a patient like Asan or another patient as like, you know, someone prone to injury for another condition? Can you store the product at that intermediate position when you've expanded it in vitro but before you've... How do you do that? Well, you do it as like the organ or you do it as a cell suspension? No, as a cell suspension. Actually, when we isolated the chronogenics and the stem cells from Azan, and we prepared the transgenic cells that then were used to make the grafts, okay, we have used less than half of the cells to cover this body. So right now, in the liquid nitrogen, there are enough cells to cover the body of Azan twice. Again, if for any reason we will need to regraft area of this body, the cells are there. And what's the path? Like you have them in suspension, then you see them on the matrix that makes them into a kind of monolayer, and then you apply that to the skin? Or do you spray the cells directly onto the wound or lesion and oh. a bandage? Don't spray keratinocytes, please. Put that to my little baby. <laughs> I try to spray them. <laughs> okay, don't spray them. I, you know, there used to be this spray hair product on that I used I to buy infomercials. That's what I'm picturing. That's the best way to kill them. <laughs> we have the frozen cells in suspension. Okay, and one, if we need, to make a piece of epidermis, we just take some of those cells, we thaw them, and we plate on a fibrin gel on a dish covered from a square dish covered with a fibrin gel, and we ask the cells to recreate the epidermis in vitro. And then we take the entire epidermis that is formed as a sheet, and we apply on the body. So we give, we transplant already a full epidermis develop in, in the dish to transplant this in the body. That's the way we do it. But we don't have to start 
from the original biopsy, to make again the genetic corrections, everything, because the mother stem cell genetically modified are there and are in the fridge. Dalen had asked earlier about whether this could be applied to, the, or to other transplant options, but can the genetic modification, are there other diseases that we can use this kind of therapy for? Yeah, well, epidermolysis mucinosa is the first one. The genetic disease has been addressed by genetically modified epidermal stem cells, and we still have to learn a lot. Remember that up to now, we have done three patients with junction. It is true that we learn a lot, especially from the skin, especially from Azan, we learn a lot, but only three patients. There is a clinical trial running right now with a very, very similar technology in Stanford by the group of Peter Marinkovich that is sort of doing the same thing as we did, using a different form of epidemiologic bullosa, not the junctional, but the dystrophic. Ourselves, we started two clinical trials, two new clinical trials with different forms of epidemiologic bullosa, not the Lamin 5, junctionally B, that, that we addressed in Hassan, but the dystrophic type 7 collagen dependent and the junctional type 17 dependent in it. And we need to run these trials to understand how they work and if we can have the same results as we had with the other form, with the other junctional, which is not written in on the rocks. I mean, we have to see whether we will have the same results because it's a different form of EB, it's a different gene, it's a different level of detachment of the epidermis, and it, it might pose different problems, different from what we encounter in the junction of EB. So we still have to learn a lot. After this, then probably in the future, other genetic skin disease can be addressed using the same technology. But that is going to be outside of my lifespan. (laughs) (laughs) Not myself would do that. The people that work with me now, they are young, probably they would do that. Speaking of uh, the people who are young, you know, we're increasingly trying to inspire young scientists out there. And I think it's a great story that you've done here. And and maybe people don't realize that, as you said, you've been doing this for 30 years. So considering the arc you know, of this clinical tree, what would you say is any advice, any lasting impression, any words of wisdom that you could share with the young scientists out there? It is true that uh, translating your basic science into a clinical setting and helping people save their life or try to address disease that they have no cure is one of the most spectacular things that can happen to a scientist. I mean, this is out of question. The same thing, for instance, it happened with the genetic modification of the hematopoietics themselves for the adenosine deaminase immunodeficiency. Those kids that they live under the bubble, you know, and they have six months of life expectancy or whatever, and now they go to school. This is an exceptional result that you can have. But in order to get there, you need a tremendous amount of perseverance, tremendous amount of perseverance, because get into these results, it may require 25 years of hard work that not always, not always can get you there. When it happens, one of the best things that can happen in your life of a scientist that is uh, devoted to this type of aim, because don't forget that people always often underestimate the beauty and the importance of basic science 
for scientists who are not like me, for instance, I am always in my career, always because I'm an MD as a formation. So in my way of looking at science, I was always trying to help people with severe disease, a rare disease. That was my aim. But there is basic science is as exceptional as the translational science. Discovery, molecular mechanism regulating self-renewal, for instance, in the stem cell field, I'm talking about in many other fields, you know, by understanding the physiology, more than the pathology, the physiology of a system, and understanding all the mechanisms regulating how our wonderful body works. In my need, years and years of work, not always you can get there, but if you discover something important with the same perseverance that you need to go in the translational medicine, this is exceptional results. And it is not easy to get there. You know, sometimes I tell to my friends that they don't really understand what I'm doing often, you know, people that are outside the scientific field, that they feel like a soccer player. Because, you know, a soccer player, they enjoy to play soccer, you know, and I enjoy to work a lot. So science is one of the most beautiful jobs you can do in your life. But it's tremendously hard, tremendously hard. And you have to have perseverance. If you don't have that, you better don't be a scientist. Yeah, I think people forget those soccer players. They think they're all having fun. Yeah, and they are, but they're working hard. So you can have fun in your job. you got to work hard. And I think those are wise words. And especially, I have to say, I'm impressed at you giving a nod to the basics out there because you're an exceptionally high-achieving translational scientist. But as you said, a beautiful mechanism can be the crowning jewel of any career. So... I'm oh, glad you, uh, you brought that up. Let me tell you this. I would never get there, not with a cornea, not with a gene therapy, not with the birds, without having a solid basic science base underneath. Because this is the basic science is what makes you think that done properly. Knowing how it all works, being able to put it together and apply it to new uses. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure getting to speak with you and to learn more about your work and such important work. Thanks. All right, Kiki, that was my man, mi muchacho, Michele De Luca. I love talking to him. And I think at the end there, he had some really inspiring words that kind of kept me in the game. You know, I was about to throw in the towel. I was had a depressing day in the lab. But to hear him talk about it, it does take hard work. It does take perseverance. I love how he said that. Perseverance and, and grit and all the things that we wish we had a little bit more of. And I, I think, the, you know, the finish line, you look at him and you see how rewarding it is if you hang in there. So a really nice guest to have on the show today. Oh, yeah. He was absolutely just a joy to talk to. He obviously loves what he does, and he has that perseverance. <laughs> perseverance. Italian. He's Italian. You know, we love the Italy and it's the science. You know, we make a difference in the world. At this point, <laughs> though, it is time for us to close up this show with our good old SCP rant. The rant is our chance to complain about something that bothers us and that most likely bothers you. But that's not really what we're doing today, right, Dalen? 
No, no. And because this is really, I'm uncomfortable with the idea of being positive, I want you to take the lead on this rant, okay? It's not a rant today. It's an anti-rant. We're thinking about something we noticed in the world that was actually surprisingly positive. Kiki, will you elaborate? Yes, this is the anti-rant. And in this ranting, I'm, it's, it's the positive thing is from Cards Against Humanity. And when you think Cards Against Humanity, you're like, oh my gosh, isn't that that game where everyone's mean to each other and they all these terrible things, you come up with these terrible things. Well, yeah, you know what? It's not all terrible because Cards Against Humanity is actually very pro-humanity and they're helping people out and they actually have a, a really neat <laughs> a program this holiday. It's called Cards Against Humanity Saves America. And uh, according to their website, they say it's 2017 and the government is being run by a toilet. Last month, 150,000 people paid Cards Against Humanity $15 to save America with six days of incredible surprises. And so they've started to reveal these surprises during the month of December. And what they've done so far is they have purchased some land that is on a plot of vacancy on the border between the United States and Mexico. And they retained a law firm that specializes in eminent domain to make it as time consuming and expensive as possible for Trump to be able to build the wall there. Brilliant. <laughs> It's fantastic. They also started a good news podcast, and it's a daily podcast called The Good News Podcast to remind you every day that not all news is bad. And finally, they did this really cool thing where they refunded 10,000 of the people who had donated the $15. They refunded them those $15. And they took the money and redistributed it because, as they say, in order for Cards Against Humanity to truly save America, we realized we would have to tackle the biggest issue in the world, wealth inequality. And so while it wasn't a huge, huge thing, they were able to give 100 people a check for $1,000. And that $1,000, according to the people who've received it, is making the difference between a holiday season with presents or without presence. It's making the difference between people having to stay in whatever city where they're studying and scrounging to be able to go to school or actually being able to go home to visit their parents for the holidays. It's making the difference between people being able to pay their bills and buy food. You know, this is $1,000 is a lot of money. And this month it's making a, an impact into 100 people's lives in a very positive way. And it makes my heart warm. It makes me happy to read about it. I'm all swelled up in the heart, too. I might cry. But listen, I'm going to have to bring <laughs> us back down to earth. We've had an inspirational show. A kid should have been dead. Now he's walking around. Yeah. we got Cars Against Humanity doing some good stuff. But this is the SCP rant. So we're mm. going to come bring it back down to earth. I'm going to tell you about some Cars Against Humanity did two years ago, Kiki, that you may not be aware of on Black Friday. They had another gimmick, which was they asked on Black Friday, ask customers to give $5 and to receive absolutely nothing in return. Okay. And they weren't going to tell them how the money was going to be spent. One person shelled out $100, not knowing how the money was going to use. Then the company revealed later on, they ended up getting $71,000 from 11,000 people, right? And then they revealed what they spent the money on. And what they did end up spending the money on was that the employees ended up splitting the profits and using the money for everything from game consoles, 
cars, down payments, college tuition, sunglasses, alcohol, mattresses, and donations to a variety of charities and nonprofits. But I loved this particular employee's list of things she bought. Carly, okay? What she bought with her money was she donated to Planned Parenthood. Apropos, when you hear what else she got, she got some Uber Lube personal lubricant, Lilo <laughs> toy cleaning spray, and a $3,000 24-karat gold-plated vibrating massager. Okay? What? Oh. Cards against humanity. They're doing good things for the world. They're doing good things for themselves. I'm all about it. I love it. It's a positive rant. Makes you, you know, laugh. Makes you cry for joy. Makes you wonder what Carly's doing tonight. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, but self-care is important. And I think the holiday season is, well, everyone's running around, stressed out, trying to get their work done, trying to get the gifts for people, trying to make it to that holiday party. And, oh, my God, I don't even have time to breathe. No, take some time for yourself. Because if you take care of yourself, it makes it so much easier to help take care of others and be a positive light in the world. That's what it's all about. All right, people. So now yeah. this went from how Cars Humanity is doing good stuff to now Kiki's encourage everyone out to go out there and get a vibrating massager. Apparently. I didn't say okay. that. I think that's the subtext. <laughs> I think that's what I heard. <laughs> Quote, unquote, self-care. <laughs> Take it however you want. Oh, my goodness. This is our positive anti-rant. Be sure to send us your rant ideas on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or email info at StemCellPodcast.com. Don't forget to take our survey at StemCellPodcast.com. I think it's still there. Dalen, that does it. Concludes our episode 107 of the Stem Cell Podcast. Everyone, be sure to tune in for our next exciting episode.